We are in a series in the book of Genesis, and uh, we've had a, a few sermons in the series, a few sermons that have turned into more sermons, and uh, you may remember last, last Sunday, I, I kind of uh, hoped that I was approaching Romans chapter, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3 with a sermon and decided to make it two sermons, so I've, I've split Genesis chapter 3 into a first half, which we, we heard about last Sunday, this Sunday, the second half, and, I, and I'm not going to split it again into halves. I'm going to leave it the second half of Genesis. It's just that I'm going to preach it in three sermons. So I haven't, I haven't split anything. I haven't changed anything at all. I've just decided to preach that second half in three different sermons because I think there's, I think there's great help for us as we look and spend time on the curse, God cursing Satan on and in giving his promise on God's judgment of the man and the woman, what that means for marriage and for work, and then, and then the exile. And so I think I want to look at those three things together uh, as, we, as we elongate that just a little bit. Maybe it's just that I don't want to leave the garden. Maybe I'm just like Adam and Eve. I really don't want to leave the garden. So we're going to linger just a little bit. More importantly, I don't want us to leave the garden without closely examining these foundations. Uh, not so much because it's about us, but because it's about God. Genesis is about God. God created the world and then planted his garden paradise in it. And in it, he placed the man and the woman, and it was very good. And then last week, we saw Satan deceive the woman, and she ate what she was commanded not to eat. And she gave to the man, and he ate what he was commanded not to eat. And immediately, they fell. They fell from obedience into disobedience. They fell from innocence into guilt and shame. They fell from desiring the presence of God to hiding from God. And we fell with them. We are not each born individually into the Garden of Eden, innocent before God. Only the first man and woman had that circumstance. We are descended from them. We are born in Adam. We are born with his sin nature. We live in the shadow of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in this fallen world. We are born with a corrupt nature, discerning for ourselves what we think is good and evil, choosing for ourselves what is sin and what is not, and we do it all apart from God and his goodness. That's how we come into the world. We come into the world that way because Adam is our representative. Adam is our representative. Adam is not an isolated person. What happens with Adam doesn't stay with Adam. He's the father of the human race. Theologians call Adam our federal head. He's the head of the human race. We're descended. We follow him. It's why when we baptize a new believer here at Christ Fellowship, the first thing we ask is, the first question is, do you understand that in Adam you're a sinner and fully deserving of God's just judgment and condemnation upon you for your sins? Before we look more closely at this, because it's not our favorite subject. Nobody woke up saying, gosh, I hope we'll really delve into the curse this morning. Nobody really wants to look at God this way. But before we look more closely at it, I want us to have a better understanding, a firm understanding of our representation. We need to understand original sin. Because Adam's original sin affects every human being in a profound way. Death. 
So before we dive into the happy topic of the curse, which, which I believe will actually reveal to us the grace of God, I want us to remember that just as Adam serves as a representative, Christ also serves as a representative, a better representative. This idea of representation runs throughout Scripture. Abraham represents Israel as their father. Father Abraham, they call him. David represents Israel as their king and their champion. And so, Christ represents his people as the second Adam. And we can see that most clearly in Romans chapter 5. Listen along, follow along as I read Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And then we'll talk about it just a little bit. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I want to look just for a moment at the ways that we are represented by Adam and by Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Now, let me just make three quick observations about representation. You can see in the passage, both Adam and Jesus represent many. Adam represents all people. Jesus represents all people who believe in him. Both Adam and Jesus represent many by their deeds. Adam, by his one trespass, which we find in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus, by his one act of righteousness. Now what is that? Well, I think we're supposed to understand that as his whole life. His righteous living and obedience to God's word, what Adam and we failed to do. His sin-atoning death on the cross and his life-giving resurrection from the dust so both represent many, both represent uh, through their deeds, and both resulted in enormous and eternal consequences. 
Adam, by his one trespass, brought sin and death and condemnation to all men. Jesus, by his righteous obedience, brings grace. The free gift of justification. The free gift of righteousness. And eternal life with God through Jesus Christ to all who believe in him. So as we see Adam's fall, and thus the fall of the entire human race, you need to know ahead of time that you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If Adam is your only representative before God, then death reigns in you because of your sin. But if Christ is your representative, because you have repented of your sin and believed in God's promise of a Savior, then life reigns in you. This is helpful. This is helpful to our understanding of original sin and our fallenness, and the fallenness of the world all around us, and the hope to be had in Jesus, who is a better representative than Adam. So let's look at Genesis chapter 3. I want to go ahead and read, beginning in verse 1, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and I'll go ahead and read through verse 15 this morning. We'll be focusing on verses 14 and 15. This is the Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Well, when we read this passage, 
we grasp that everything has changed. What I think we fail to grasp is that nothing has changed. On the one hand, man has entered into a spurious covenant with Satan based on lies. Creation is wrecked. Every relationship is ruined. The universe is forever changed, never to return to its state of paradise. In one sense, from our perspective, everything has changed. The perspective we fail to see is that, on the other hand, nothing has changed. God is still Lord. The Lord God is still sovereign over everything and everyone. He still speaks. And when he speaks, his will is done. Adam, where are you? Adam appears. I'm here. I was hiding because I was naked. The creation has gone from paradise to ruin. And to you and me, that's a catastrophe. But the Lord God has not changed. His purpose is still for his own glory. His word is still his unstoppable power. His character is still good and right and true. And he permitted this. Now, I'll just say that again. He permitted this. Why? It's a good question. He doesn't tell us why. The perfect mind of God remains a mystery and a majesty. But we do have a pretty good hint. Right here in the text. We have a pretty good hint. God permitted this because he will be glorified through his promise of a seed. He permitted this so that Jesus Christ, who is that seed, will be exalted and God will be glorified. There is no catastrophe so great, no treachery of man so sinful that it can bring a taint in the slightest degree to the sovereign glory of God. And so we look at how God moves to address sin and the fall. You know, a few years ago, <laughs> if my boys had ruined my garden, which would have been really Julie's tomato garden, but I would have had, I would have had like responsibility for guarding it, right? You would have seen my anger. You would have perceived my frustration. Uh, you would have heard my unhappy words and seen my tense posture. Look, God... God responds in such an orderly way. There's no panic. There's no yelling. There's no out of proportion justice. God's judgment is proper. It's addressed to the right parties. And it's entirely appropriate. See, that's what you can expect from God's judgment of you. Not a blanket judgment. Everybody get out. No, he will judge you personally. And he will hold you accountable for your sin. And he will act in ways that are always appropriate to you. And he will be a righteous judge. 
Now, God will go to the man, and God will go to the woman, but first, he goes to the snake and Satan. God doesn't ask the snake or Satan any questions, as he did the man and the woman. He just declares. He just declares. Just as we were on the first day of creation, we are still focused on God's speech. Our focus on reading this is that God speaks his word. And it hasn't changed. Oh, there's all this stuff taking place around him, but we are focused on God's word. Look at verse 14 again. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. First of all, here's a nice little reminder. God knows everything. God knows everything because you, snake, because you, Satan, have done this. And God himself curses the snake. So we know that his curse will come true. This is not a prophet calling upon God to bring down a judgment or a curse upon someone. This is God speaking a curse to the snake. It'll happen. He's cursed. And what is the snake's curse? You will forever crawl on your belly and eat dust. Hmm. Could have been worse. I mean, isn't that what snakes do? Did the serpent used to have legs? I don't know, but maybe. It's not necessary. I don't think God is cursing the snake with a new existence. He's cursing him with a new significance. In Scripture, things that crawl and eat dust are things despised. They are things that have been humiliated, things that have been lowered. From now on, the snake is separated from all the other animals. From now on, the snake is isolated from the other living things. He's, he's placed into a category of unclean things, which we can read about in Leviticus, to be despised and to be avoided. The snake is now a sign of God's curse, a forever reminder of God's curse. This is what happens to those who rise above their level to defy God. They will be lowered. They will be despised. They will be humiliated. And I think we can draw a couple of important things from this. Really? From the snake? Well, I think we can draw a couple of important things from this. First, we should note that God punishes the snake with a curse. But God does not punish the man and the woman with a curse. Now, I know we haven't gotten there yet, and we'll see that more clearly when we get to verses 16 to 19, but God does punish the man and the woman, but not with a curse. Second, we need to, we need to see that this is a punishment for what he has done. You know, we're, we're kind of fond of the phrase, sin has consequences. Well, you know, sin has consequences, but there is a difference between the consequences of sin and God's punishment for your sin. A natural consequence of your sin may, well, gosh, it may actually be short-term pleasure, the Bible says. Or it could be eventual physical pain. A spiritual consequence of your sin may be just another little layer of callousness on your heart towards God. You see, the consequences of sin may or may not appear in this life. But punishment for your sin is a certain act of God. If not in this life, 
which it can be, than in the next. Punishment is different than consequences. God punishes the snake with a curse. He takes away the dignity of the snake. Does God take away the dignity of the man and the woman? No. He does not, but he does the snakes. He makes the snake a symbol of God's curse on Satan, which should cause us to stop and think, just just for a moment, if God sentences the snake, just an animal, with a curse for his sin against God, what should my sentence be for my sins against God? What should my punishment be for ignoring the word of God, deciding what is good on my own? Wouldn't hell forever be a just sentence? As we move from verse 14 to 15, it becomes clear that God's no longer addressing the snake, but Satan, who used the snake. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know, we should be astounded by something here. I suppose... Maybe, maybe I read those just too, too monotone. The Lord God said, he speaks. Here's this, here's this calamitous fall. And you wonder, what's going to happen next? What happens next is God speaks. This is momentous. We should be astounded at God's initiative. Think about that for a moment. God does not sit back and do nothing. God does not wait for the man and the woman to cry out for mercy. A little little help down here. we got a real mess on our hands. Won't you do something? He doesn't wait for a cry for mercy and then get up off the couch. God could have just turned away. He could have just turned away. God could have just scrapped the whole thing. The vision of a potter just... Break that vase. Throw it away. Make it clay again. Instead, God takes the initiative and declares war on Satan. God declares war on Satan in two ways. One, with enmity, and two, with crushing. The word in the ESV is bruising. And and that's the most obvious declaration of war. God's declaration that the seed of the woman will crush Satan's head. You understand he's speaking directly to Satan. He says, here's what's going to happen to you. I'm going to crush your head. That's a death blow, and we'll talk more about it in a moment. The less obvious declaration is one we often just kind of skip right by. First, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Have you ever just wondered, what is this enmity? What is that anyway? I don't know. Let's go, let's go talk about crushing, crushing Satan's head. You know, I've, I've listened to Stephen Tracy on this, and I, and I think I agree with him. I mean, we know that enmity is it's hostility between two parties. You could say there's, there's hatred or opposition between two parties. Isn't there already enmity in the garden when God says this? Yes, I think there's enmity at the moment that the man and the woman eat of the fruit. 
Chiefly, there's enmity among all the, all the people and the serpent and Satan down in the garden against God. That's the enmity. It's rebellion and treason. The snake and Satan and the man and the woman are all at enmity with God. Now, think back just for a moment. Do you remember in the creation week how we said that? Remember, God speaks, or God sees, God separates, and God names. Remember that? Day after day after day of creation, God speaks, God sees, God separates, and God names. And when God separates, what he is doing is actually putting things in their proper place. Remember? God creates light, and then he separates the light and the dark. Light, you go over here. Dark, you go over there. He puts them in their place. Here, God steps in and places enmity where he wants it. He takes some enmity and he places it in the woman's heart. God's first declaration of war against Satan is placing enmity between the woman and Satan. God puts a hostility in her heart so that everyone born of the woman will at least be a little wary of Satan. God does not leave Adam and Eve living too comfortably with Satan. Now this is subtle. And, and, and I want to avoid reading too much into it. He does not put a love for God in Adam and Eve. He does not do that. That will only come through the gospel. That will only come later. But God does take this step so that people won't wholly love Satan either. And I think this fits with our understanding of total depravity. I mean, since the fall, every aspect of our being is tainted with sin. We're not totally and only evil through and through, so we're not as evil as we could be. I think it fits here as well. If, I think that if God had not introduced this enmity, we could have become as evil as we possibly could have become. And this world would be hell. This world is fallen, but this world is not hell. I, th I think we can see this operating in our conscience. In our conscience, we both love and hate, or at least don't trust, our sin. I mean, there's a turmoil in us over sin. When we sin, our conscience accuses us. This also fits with our idea of the natural law written on our hearts. God did not completely abandon us. We have a built-in turmoil and conflict over sin. Now to be sure, we still love darkness because our deeds are evil. Just as, just as John says. And to love God requires our conversion. It requires God applying the gospel and transforming us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But the opening declaration of God's war on Satan was this, I'll call it a defensive act, of putting enmity between Satan and the woman. It, it, it's kind of as if, okay, this far, but no further. A small act of grace. This enmity is a long-haul strategy. The war is going to continue for a while. We get that impression, don't we? History will be the account of God waging war on Satan. 
And God declares his future victory with this curse of Satan's doom. One day, the seed of the woman will crush his head. Here at the fall, God's glory is scratched and it's smudged. But he immediately goes to war to restore his glory. And wrapped up in that in verse 15 is this promise of the seed of the woman. Let me just read it again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The ESV uses the word offspring. As I've said before, seed uh, is the more accurate translation. So, so here's a question. Who is Satan's seed? Who is Satan's seed? Well, in a broad sense, Satan's seeds are those who, as the context suggests, reject God. They're not following God, they're following Satan. And, and we, we get this refined understanding in the New Testament. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus tells those who do not believe in his word. Okay, that's the context that's in Genesis 2, right? You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul reminds us in, the in, in, to, in his letter to the Ephesians that we believers were once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sons of disobedience. But now, through Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to God, our, our Father. We see that transformation. And this is our New Testament orientation to the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. But we, we can't always take our New Testament understanding, which is highly refined, and overlay it on an Old Testament passage, which is not as refined. Here's what I mean by that. Now, think of... Think of our New Testament theology, our New Testament understanding as finely ground coffee for espresso. And think of the word in the Old Testament, particularly all the way back in Genesis, as coffee beans. And when you pour hot water over coffee beans, you get something entirely different than when you pour hot water over that finely ground espresso, don't you? And so this, this foundation is not yet this highly refined theology. And so we can't always just place our New Testament theology on the Old Testament. It's just not intended to support that much detail. And we get confused when we do that because we want to bring more detail out of what does not have more detail to offer. Here's my point. While Genesis points to that New Testament understanding, Genesis bears a less refined, more basic understanding of these two seeds. It's a little more raw. It's a little more foundational. You see, there, there really is only one offspring isn't there? Satan does not bear children. Eve does. So Satan's seed, singular, and Eve's seed, singular, are going to both come from the same lot of offspring. Singular, not plural, is the key. As we read this, we can't tell in our English, but we can in the Hebrew, the word seed here is singular pointing to a specific seed. So Satan's seed is ultimately Satan himself. He will crush your head. And Eve's seed is ultimately Jesus Christ. That's what we need to know. 
And here's how that text reads. He will bruise your head, Satan. Don't you love that? Do you see right at the very beginning after the fall what God says? He will crush your head, Satan. The one singular promised by God, seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, will one day crush Satan's head. And that is the gospel. In the midst of the curse of Satan's doom is the hope of man's salvation. What an unlikely spot to find hope. This foreshadows a consistent theme throughout Scripture. We've talked about it before, that salvation comes through judgment. We are saved through judgment on our sin which fell on Christ. Salvation comes through judgment. It must be that way in order for God to be both just and the justifier. So what about these two bruisings? I'm calling them two fatal bruisings. What about God's promise that Satan will crush Jesus' heel? The ESV uses the word bruise. Other translations use the word crush. It's the same Hebrew word both times. Some translations will say that Satan only strikes at Jesus' heel while Jesus crushes Satan's head. I like that translation, or at least on the surface I do. But, and I think they're trying to convey that Jesus wins by softening what Satan does to Jesus. But I think that's a mistake. The difference that we're given in the text is that Satan receives a crushed head. That's a mortal blow. That's a death blow from which he will not recover. And that's right. And Jesus receives a crushed heel something from which he will ultimately recover. But doesn't Jesus die? Yes. On the cross, when Jesus deals the mortal wound to Satan, doesn't Jesus also die? Yes. And God decrees it so. Where? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus Christ's death on the cross is not some unforeseen, unfortunate happenstance. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God decreed it from his own mouth, it will happen. See, the hope of the gospel, the hope of a savior, the hope of the promised seed of the woman will put things all right and will come about through Jesus' death on the cross. This is God's declaration of total war on sin, death, and the devil. It will be a costly war for God. But one day, One virgin will bear one seed, Jesus the Son of God, who will save his people from their sin. In Luke chapter 11 verse 20, Jesus says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger, 
Then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. Jesus is the stronger man who is plundering Satan's house of souls. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 writes, Since therefore the children share in his in his flesh and in flesh and blood, excuse me, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's through his death on the cross that Jesus conquered not only Satan, but death itself. In Colossians chapter 2 we read, And you, who were once dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them into open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. It is no longer we in Christ who are ashamed, but Satan and his fallen cohort who bear the shame. On the cross, Jesus died defeating Satan, but by his death, he defeated death too. It's a costly war, but we have victory in Jesus, and so does God. I want to make sure we have the right perspective here. This is the gospel. This is the promise that we love. This is the good news that brings life to sinners, but it's more than that. God is not telling this to Adam. God is not telling this to Eve. The Lord God is speaking directly to Satan. God tells Satan to his face, Jesus Christ will crush him. Why? Because the work of Jesus Christ is not first and foremost for our salvation. The victorious work of Jesus Christ is first and foremost for God's name and God's rule and God's glory. God has not relinquished his sovereign rule and glory to anyone, certainly not Satan, and certainly not us. The first reason for a Savior is not because we're sinners. The first reason for a Savior is because God is glorious. And we can see this clearly in Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to read just a little bit, beginning in verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, so God is telling his prophet Ezekiel to tell the people who are in exile because of their sin, awaiting their rescue. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, 
when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is not saving a number of sinners that no man can count through faith in Jesus Christ, the life giver, just for us, just for us. But that is collateral blessing for his war, for his glory. We need to get over our selfish approach to the gospel. It's wrong to place our salvation before God's glory. It's all right to praise and thank God for your salvation, but not before God's glory. We are by God and for God. We are by Christ and for Christ. He is first. We come second. Praise God. The gospel in Genesis chapter 3.15 is not first about our sin. It is first about destroying Satan, which deals with your sin and my sin. Our victory in Jesus is for our salvation. Thank God. Thank God. But even more importantly, even more consequentially, even more praiseworthily, is God's victory in Jesus for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow before your throne. We pay homage to you. We kiss the Son. We thank you for him. We thank you for his glory. We thank you for your glory. We thank you that we are found in God, in Christ, and that when his glory is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.